0: Good morning and welcome to the Church of Blue Ridge. My name is Ted. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to have you all with us. Good to have several of our North Greenville students here with us this morning. Welcome. It's always a pleasure. Uh, We uh, are in Nehemiah for those who might be with us for the first time. And today we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 8. Before we begin, though, let me read this verse. You know this chapter. It's Isaiah 9. We have some great Christmas passages Some great prophecies of Jesus Christ, but I want to read verse two, which seldom gets read. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. This morning, the title, as you'll see on the screen, is from Out of the Darkness. And God, of course, uses his word, his revelation to draw men and women out of darkness and into the glorious light of the gospel. Now, as some of you know, I like to swim. Actually, I don't like to swim, but I've been swimming for about eight years. That's how I uh, uh, keep up with my wife's cooking and baking. And uh, anyways, uh, this summer's been great because we have a neighborhood pool, so I've been able to go very early and, uh, and that's been a problem lately because our, our subdivision is letting Travelers Rest High School use our pool, which is actually a very good thing, but I've got to get there super early before they get there and make it into a wave pool. So this past week, I got there at 6.10 in the morning. I started walking to the pool, and it was pitch black. It was like nighttime because there was cloud cover. And I get to the pool. There's no light in the pool, and there's one light on the pool deck. It was spooky. All right, logically, I know there are no great white sharks in my pool, but emotionally, when you're swimming and you look to the dark side of the pool, you start thinking maybe, right? And when, I, when I'm swimming the laps, I, I leave the area where that one light is, and I swim to the other end of the pool where it's just pitch black. And it's amazing how when I turned around at the wall and started swimming back, the light, got, it, it started to shine. I could see it. I started swimming faster, just naturally, without even thinking about it. We are drawn to the light, even physically. How much more spiritually when God graciously brings us into his glorious presence. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. But before we get to chapter 8, let's do a little review here of where we've been. I call this the Nehemiah roadmap. And for those of you who are with us for the first time, this will be helpful. You'll see up there all the chapters that we have covered. We've actually skipped a couple this week. Now, the word vision there, for me, it refers to God's will for Nehemiah to build the wall. Okay, so that's That'll help us understand this. And in chapter one, we saw that vision received by Nehemiah. Chapter two, we saw that vision communicated both to the king above and to the people below about what God's will was. And then in chapter three, we see the vision executed. They start rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Chapter four, two weeks ago, we saw the, the vision opposed externally by God's enemies. You might remember that. And then last week, Matt Rogers was here and he he preached chapter five, which was an incredible uh, sermon on on the importance of social justice within the covenant community. And so we we see that the vision was threatened or opposed internally because of the corruption of the Jewish leaders and nobles. And then uh, we're gonna skip six and seven and pick up an eight today. But chapter 6 is really a a repeat of chapter 4. Our our friends Sambalat and Tobiah, the villains, get a little more creative in trying to oppose Nehemiah and trying to lure him out and and kill him. So I encourage you to read that. Now, one very important passage in chapter 6 that we have to look at so that we can all have closure in terms of the wall. It's up on the screen here, verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul. In 52 days. So they built the wall in 52 days, less than two months. Uh, The month of Elul would be half of August and half of September. So just think the end of August, beginning of September, as when it was finished. And that was the same year, by the way, that Nehemiah arrived, 445 B.C. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So now back to the roadmap slide. Chapter 7 is simply a cut and paste of Ezra 2. So at the beginning of chapter 7, the memoirs or the journal of Nehemiah ends. And now we get go from first person to third person, and we have this cut and paste Ezra 2 put right back in here to chapter 7. And what's happening there, it's a transition from the first part of Nehemiah to now the middle section, verse, uh, especially chapters 8 through 10, when we see the covenant renewal. Uh, have anyone, has anyone ever tried out for a team in school or, or you know, something to where there was a cut, and that next day you come and look on the wall, it's my name on the list, Is my name on the list. It's kind of what chapter 7 is. If your name or your family's name isn't on this list, you do not belong in the Jewish community. And that was really important to have that repeated here, before today's passage, and in, in the next two weeks actually, we'll be looking at the covenant renewal, the internal wall that needs to be built with the people of Israel in relationship to their God. And that's what you see there, chapters 8 through 10. This is the heart, not just of Nehemiah, but of the entire Ezra and Nehemiah book. You might remember the first week I told you all that Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book, not two. So, chapter 8, the chapter we're looking at today, is the climatic passage of all of Ezra. And Nehemiah, the renewal of the people of God, and it begins with the word of God, from darkness into light. That's what we're going to see here today. And what's great about this chapter is this is how God has always been revealing himself, always been saving his children, drawing them out of darkness into the light through his glorious word, through his gospel. And that's what we'll see here today. Uh, As always, I have a big idea that helps guide the outline of the text, and here it is up on the screen. Today, as the people faithfully seek to renew their covenant with God, he will graciously use his written word to bring them out of the darkness and into the light. Let's pray. Father, this chapter has been a, a very important chapter to the church throughout the last couple thousand years, and of course, uh, you know, all the way to 2,500 years ago when it was written. And how great is it that just as you're saving your people here in the old covenant time, you've been doing the same thing throughout history, using your glorious word, both the written and living word, Jesus Christ, to save us, to bring us uh, into relationship with you, into covenant relationship. And Father, uh, we as a church want to be faithful. We want to be people of the book, just like is happening here in this text today. And even at this very moment, uh, we are in a service, a corporate gathering, just like we're about to see. And we pray the same things that I'm sure Ezra and Nehemiah prayed and, and the leaders prayed before this event, that you would work, that your spirit would come down and penetrate our hearts today. Whether we're lost or saved, we all need your gracious word in our hearts. We need your gospel every single day. So have your way with us. Work today. And I pray, as always, Lord, that none of us in this room will leave here today the same as when we walked in. For those who are lost, that they would be converted to Christ. For those of us who are saved, that we would continue to be sanctified and that you would grow us, especially in how we see your word playing a part in our everyday life as we continue to grow and be sanctified by your Holy Spirit. Again, we thank you for this time. And we pray for your blessing upon this, the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. So we're going to see here today three ways in which God graciously uses his written word in the life of the people of Israel. Again, we'll be looking at chapter 8. And the first way that we'll see is simply through exposure. Exposure to his word. Uh, Having the word of God, we take it for granted. But the Word of God being exposed, for people coming into contact with it, is an incredible blessing and responsibility of the church to take the Word before people, and that's what's happening here today. Now, uh, it has always been God's will for His people to have unfettered access to His Word, and we see that here today. God wanted His people to have regular contact with His Word, and I mention that because for a thousand years in church history, God's Word was locked up. call that the medieval or the dark ages, the middle ages, the period of time when the church fell under false teaching and thought it best to keep God's word hidden in a dead language of Latin. And what did God do? What checkmate did God bring in history about 500 years ago? The Protestant Reformation. And we mark the beginning of that when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. But the the real Reformation happened in the heart when he translated the New Testament from Latin, or actually from Greek, into German. When the people could now read God's word in the language they understood, that's when the Reformation broke out. And I told you guys, you might remember the first week of this sermon series, uh, scholars look at this Ezra-Nehemiah time period and equate it in many ways with the Protestant Reformation. God doing the very same thing. Uh, during these time periods. So uh, that's what we're going to see here as we read this great passage. So open your Bibles to uh, chapter 8, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Of course, I lost my place, so give me a moment to to find it again. We're going to uh, begin in verse 1 and read just a few verses here, and then we'll talk about what's happening. So starting in uh, Nehemiah 8.1, and all the people And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that had been made for the purpose, and beside him stood 13 men. I'm not going to read their names today. We'll stop there. Just let's observe a few things that we see here on this great day. Uh, scholars believe this happened just a week or two after the completion of the wall. So, this is that same year. Uh, the seventh month, which we'll talk about more in the next section, is the month of Tishri, and this would be September. To uh, October. So September, October. The Jewish months kind of overlap our calendar. Uh, so it's happening right after this, uh, this event. And what's neat here is the, some of the words here in the Hebrew indicate to us that the people wanted this. This wasn't just the leaders saying, all right, everybody's got to come tomorrow at seven in the morning because we're going to read the Word. And people are like, oh, okay, like me going to church as a kid. It wasn't like that. The people actually requested this they were unified in this, and they wanted to hear God's word. Again, they've grown up. Uh, descendants of those who returned from Babylonian captivity didn't really grow up with the word of God. Uh, the land had been starving for God's word, and now it's going to break forth like a dam into their hearts, as we see here. Uh, so Ezra comes. He has, we read the book of the law of Moses so we also find out from this that it was about five hours. So imagine like seven, eight in the morning up till lunchtime. So it's a long time. They could not read through all five books of Moses. If you don't know it, the first, books, first five books of the Old Testament were written by Moses, the Pentateuch. So these were probably selective readings from maybe all five of those books. A lot of it would have been Deuteronomy, but it was God's written word. They didn't have books yet, so these would have been scrolls like you've seen in some of the movies uh, that they would unroll. And Ezra, we've heard a lot about Ezra. The first book has his name, but we have not seen him yet. Uh, And I encourage you, we didn't cover Ezra 7 through 10, but if you read Ezra 7 through 10, 10, that's his narrative. That's when he comes into the story. He was a priest sent by the same king, King Artaxerxes, 13 years before Nehemiah was sent. So now we see the guys team up, and Ezra brings the word of God out. Uh, One of my favorite passages, it's probably top 10 passage in all the Bible, Write it down and go look it up later. It's Ezra 7.10. It's, it's when we meet him. And I love the passage because essentially it tells us that Ezra has the triple crown when it comes to God's word. It says that he studied the word of God, he did it, now applied it to his life, and he taught it in all of Israel. And my friends, if we can do that, we can do no better than Ezra. It should be our goal to study it, try to do it, and find ways to teach it to others. And and so Ezra is an incredible man of God coming now to bring the word before the people. You'll notice who was there. You had men, women, and all who can understand. So that's referring to children. And that's what really inspired me to ask Danny to read the Shema, which is the crowning passage. It was probably the most important passage to a Jew growing up. In fact, I'm sure that passage was read on this day. And and it shows the importance of family worship. It shows the importance and responsibility that parents have uh, to raise their children. And here at the Church of Blue Ridge, we value children being in the service. Now, we do have our nursery, of course, which is needed for birth through Uh, K-5, but you're also welcome to bring your children in here, because it's your responsibility to raise your children uh, to know God and to know His Word. So we want to make sure you have all the tools you need uh, to do that, because we're here as a support, but it's not our responsibility. It's yours as parents, and we'll talk more about that later. But nonetheless, can you imagine children out here standing and listening to God's Word for half the day? It's incredible, uh, and these people were hungry. But the most important part of what we read is at the, be- the end of uh, verse 3. The ears of the people were attentive to God's word. That's, that's a miracle. I can tell you as someone who's been preaching for almost 15 years and teaching, it is a miracle when people pay attention. And you all pay attention very well. I'll just say that. Occasionally I put someone to sleep. But you a very attentive group. Week, I'm serious. Week in and week out. And we appreciate that. Uh, Robert and I do. But attention is a gift of God right? It's a blessing, something we don't take for granted. So God has given them this ability to pay attention, uh, which is probably a lot easier for them to do. They didn't have as many distractions, but nonetheless, a great discipline. So you see them here, and you see them at the water gate. Another interesting thing. It's kind of funny. I, was, I typed up my outline on Google Docs, and it had a red line under water gate. I'm like, what? I spelt water right, and I spelt gate right. What's going on? And I thought about it. It was thinking Watergate, the 70s scandal. I didn't, it didn't even come to my mind. But they're here at the Watergate. And why that's important is they could have had this worship service in the temp, on the Temple Mount, but they don't. They have it in the public square. And one scholar I read said, that's huge. That's, that's reminding us that God's word can never, shouldn't be this compartmentalized Sunday-only thing, right, the religious day. It needs to crash into and permeate every area of our life. God's Word's being proclaimed to the people right there on Main Street, USA. And that's something that we struggle with. Again, I went to church my whole life as a kid. Every day, every Sunday, I went to church. uh, Every Sunday. And it was weird. It was like God's Word never made the return trip home. We never talked about God growing up. We didn't read the Bible. We had them collecting dust on the shelf. But it never made the trip home. It was just Sunday only, and that was it. Of course, I was a false convert, as were my parents. We weren't saved but God's word needs to crash into and overtake every area of our life. That's actually what sanctification is. So it's huge that they're having this service in the public square, in the center of city life, or at least one of the public squares. There were several uh, near each of the major gates. So this service is going on. You can imagine Ezra. He's up on a stage, probably has some sort of podium. Uh, I remember learning in seminary that Baptist churches uh, use this text to kind of model their corporate time. Uh, He's got 13 men flanking him, six on one side, seven on the other. They're probably priests. So imagine this happening here at the Church of Blue Ridge. If we spent five hours together, and I'm up here, Robert's up here, Mike is up here, maybe some of our other leaders. We'll have some high-back chairs that they're sitting in behind me. And uh, I read a little bit, and then you guys go break out into small groups, and other leaders come and explain to you what I just got done reading. And then we come back together, someone else gets up, one of the other men, and they read. That's what's happening here. That's kind of the scene uh, that's happening during this incredible service. So let's pick back up uh, in verse five and keep reading. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, again, 13 more men, these are now Levites, uh, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading clearly. So this, uh, yeah, understood the reading. So this is neat. Uh, You know, here at the Church of Blue Ridge, we have our corporate time on Sunday morning, but as we tell you all, this isn't, really the, the all and end all of what it means to be a church, because we have five missional community groups that meet throughout the week that do life together. Uh, we meet in cell groups each week, uh, two or three men, two or three women studying God's Word. In fact, our cell groups met this week and read this very same passage in preparation for the sermon. Uh, these groups also get together as large groups to do mission, uh, and, and that's, what's, that's what we see here. We see both elements happening on this day. So as I said earlier, the priests are reading, and then the Levites break out in small groups to make sure everybody understood what they just heard. Uh, What's happening here, first and foremost, is the Levites would have had to translate the Hebrew into Aramaic, because most of the Jews probably didn't know Hebrew. Again, because of how the 70 years in Babylon interrupted Jewish history, Here we have families here that wouldn't have known Hebrew as well as their ancestors did. So the Levites, who surely knew Hebrew uh, because of their role in worship, went out and translated first and foremost into Aramaic, into the international language of the time. And then they would explain further what Ezra or one of the priests just got reading, giving a clear sense so that they can understand. And so I think this is a really neat passage to see both the corporate and the small group element and how each of us need that. Uh, throughout a week. And so love that here at the Church of Blue Ridge uh, as we continue to to serve in this way. Uh, Now critics have taken this passage and said, uh, have accused that they're worshiping an ancient relic. We have relic veneration going on here. That is, it gets these ancient scrolls out. The people are worshiping the relics. And that's not what's happening. In fact, in the text we see, they were worshiping the Lord. It it says it. Uh, Ezra blessed the Lord, and it tells us the people worship the Lord. But look at all the actions of both Ezra and the people. How, again, you see worship combined with the reading of scripture. You see the people stand. You see the people bow. You see them get on the ground. You see them lift their hands. And what's happening, and this, this is probably happening at the beginning of this time, but what's happening here is the people are thankful that God loved them so much to write his word. I don't know about you, but There's been times in my life, as a lost person for sure, the first 22 years of my life, but but even as a believer since then, where I take this book for granted, these people are no longer taking this for granted. And when I see this, it really convicts me, makes me search my attitude. What's my attitude towards God's word? Am I really that thankful uh, to him for doing it? So they're worshiping God because he took the time to write this, to give us instruction so we know how. Uh, to relate with him. And of course, we see the gospel and all the other things that are in it. And it reminded me of when I was in boot camp. The greatest day of a week in boot camp was mail day. And you just hoped that your family members, friends, or significant other happened to send you a letter because it was sad when that day came. I think it was Thursday, and you didn't have a letter. It was really funny when someone got a postcard because the drill, the drill sergeant would read it to everybody. But, but that was incredible because there you are. Now, we didn't have all the communication that we, we have now in the early 90s, but nonetheless, even if we had it, we couldn't bring it. So we were totally cut off from the world for eight weeks. Can you imagine that? I can't imagine that for a day or even an hour anymore. So we're cut off. So that was all you had. That was the only communication you got from the outside world was that letter, it, whether it be a love letter or your parents telling you about their vacation or whatever it might be. And, and you were so thankful that that person took the time because even then it was a pain to write a letter. And it took the time to write you. And, and so that's kind of what this reminded me of. Just that appreciation to God for his gracious, gracious love. So let's look at a few application points and then we'll continue. And by the way, this first section is the most important part of the passage. So we've spent a little bit of extra time here. We'll move quicker through the next two. But the first thing I want to say is this. You know, what, what place does the scripture have in your life today? What value do you place upon it? And, and I'm talking to believers now. I'm talking to church members and believers. How much value do you take or how do you put on the fact that God has given you his word? And that's not shown by words or thoughts. That's shown by action. So what is your action on a daily basis to God's word? How, how important is it in the rhythm of your life? And for those of you who are parents, in the rhythm of your family life, and teaching your children as we've been talking about. And so I have a a slide up here that just kind of helps us. And again, this is for church members, this is for believers. If you're struggling to develop a habit to be in God's Word each day, it's it's not a time problem, because that's usually what I hear, especially in counseling. It's not a time problem, it's a heart problem. Because the reality is we can do whatever we want. When you and I say, I can't, we're really saying, I won't. Because that's how it is in my heart. And I think we have similar hearts. And and we're not legalists here. We never will be. I hate legalism. But nonetheless, as new creatures, we've been created or recreated by God to run on God's word. This is our sustenance. This is our nutrients. This is how we grow. And as I've said several times in biblical counseling, 10 out of 10 people that come to see me or colleagues or other pastors this book has no place in their life, very little at least. So again, I know that stings a little bit, but it's out of love. It's out of my love as a pastor, not judgment at all. Again, we err on the side of grace here at the church at Blue Ridge, but it's not a time problem, it's a heart problem. And what you have to do, Ephesians 4 is a great chapter for this, is you have to change your habit. You have to develop a disciplined habit in this area, and it will spill over into other areas, but what you need is personal exposure. Again, that's the that's first great gift of God is exposure to his word. We need personal exposure. We need family exposure. And it doesn't have to be this, this drudgery of a family worship service where your kids are like this. Make it fun. Mix it up. If you have younger children, you be Goliath and let them be David. You know, have fun with it. Do things that will be memorable. But expose yourself and your families to God's word. Also, connect in one of our missional community groups. Uh, we would love to, if you're if you're kind of rolling with us here at the Church of Blue Ridge, but you have yet to get connected, or even if it's your first week, we would love to talk talk to you more about that. Uh, I can tell you, we've only been doing this a few months, and, you know, yeah, I'm a pastor, but I'm also a, a sheep. And for me to meet with two other men every week to go deep in God's word, to encourage each other, to hold each other accountable, has been incredible. I love it. It's like, where has this been all my Life And then as we get together as a large group to, to fellowship at Family Meal or go do Third Space, be on mission, it's incredible. So get connected with a missional community group. Ask about cell groups and getting connected into one of those. And then finally, here's my challenge. This is, a, this is not law. This is a challenge. So again, no legalism. But I want to encourage you, bring your Bibles on Sunday mornings. And that's for some of you who aren't bringing any Bible. But even for those of you who are depending on electronic Bibles, I believe, it's my opinion, Uh, as an expert in the field of of practical engagement with God's Word, that you will get more out of having a real Bible sitting on your lap than an electronic one. Electronic Bibles are better than nothing, but they're not better than a real book. I firmly believe that. Uh, And so that's my opinion. So I want to challenge you again. Again, no legalism. This isn't law. You will not be judged. You will not be ridiculed. It's just a personal challenge for you all. Because you the way we preach, the way Robert and I preach, we go verse verse by verse through the text. And and it's just so important that you have a copy of God's word open in front of you. So there are just a few application points. And then let's look at this last passage here before we move on to, to part two. This comes from 2 Peter. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. I love that passage. Again, from out of darkness, light. And he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to believers about what they have in God's word. And if you read verses 20 and 21, you see two of the great verses on the inspiration of the scriptures being God's word. But if you look at the context, what is Peter comparing this to? You see, it starts out more fully. What is he saying that the prophetic word is is more fully? He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you all remember that? When, when Peter and John and James went to the top of the mountain with Jesus and Jesus was transformed into all his glory, Moses and Elijah appear. You guys know what passage I'm talking about? He's, he's uh, recalling that experience and he's saying as great as that experience was, probably I think it's probably one of the greatest experiences ever to happen on the face of the earth, he said it doesn't compare to the word of God that we have in our hands. Truth is more important than experience, even that experience. So great reminder for us Today So again, we've seen exposure as the first way in which God's going to bless the people of Israel. The second way and this will be a lot quicker understanding, understanding. Now I don't know about you, but I'm noticing a trend in public restrooms, especially at state parks and at rest stops. They don't have mirrors anymore. Anyone ever seen you go into a bathroom lately, public bathroom? there's no mirror. And it, it's like, what? got to look in the mirror, make sure there's nothing going on with my appearance. Sometimes I'll have a piece of stainless steel, but you kind of look like a ghost in that. It's really hard to make yourself out. And so imagine not having a mirror in that situation. How can you check to see if there's something wrong with your appearance or not? Something on your face, something hanging from something, whatever it might be, right? And that's why understanding is, again, a blessing from God. Many people have read God's Word. Many people have been in the Scriptures and have not had understanding occur. It's a miracle of God when he opens our eyes and allows us to recognize the truth that we've been exposed to. And so let's continue reading in verse 9 and see how that happens on this day. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, so this is still that same day, first day of the month. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now, this is incredible. This passage is confusing, right? And I say that because they actually responded appropriately. If you read God's word, especially as a lost person, This is kind of my testimony, as you guys know. I was a lost young adult who read Scripture for the first time. You you see two major things when God graciously gives you understanding. First and foremost, he is holy. And secondly, you're not, and you need that grace. And so they're responding as they should. In fact, the leaders could say, wow, it worked. Praise God, it took, right? Guys like it when things they try actually work, and, and it worked. The people were broken before God, because they see their sin compared to the holiness of God, as well as his grace to, to give them this word and to bring them back out of captivity during this new exodus, if you will. So why in the world would Nia and Ezra uh, take the foot off the gas and say, hey, whoa, whoa, stop, stop crying, stop weeping, stop repenting. Let's have a party. It's essentially what's happening. I don't know about you, but this doesn't seem to jive with the cultural Christian Doom and gloom legalism that we've been brought up with, where you have to sit there and be so guilty about your sin and beat yourself up. What's going on? Two things are going on. The first one, this is grace. This is the gospel. This is the heart of the God who has rescued us. Now, they will deal with their sin and come back next week. Or if you're not going to come back next week, read chapter nine. They're going to deal with their sin appropriately. So, in no way are we saying, hey, sin doesn't matter. No. When God points out sin, we need to have this repentant attitude. But why they're so excited is because it worked. The people repented. We should see this as conversion. We should see this as this elect group that was brought back from Babylon now being converted from the inside out. As God's word came crashing into their life, they see their sin. They're repenting and, and weeping over their sins. So let's celebrate that. Let's celebrate the gracious salvation of our God. So that's the first reason. The second reason, as I told you earlier, this is the first day of the seventh month. And I, I wouldn't have known this reading the English. I had to study this. Maybe some of you did. You looked in your study Bible. But back in the law, you see it in Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 16, the first day of the seventh month was a Jewish festival. It wasn't a major festival like Passover. It was a minor festival. It's called the Feast of the Trumpets. Similar to Labor Day or Fourth of July, you know, one day, get off from work. In fact, if you read the the law, you'll see they were supposed to have the day off from work. And they were supposed to celebrate God's gracious salvation and have a party and eat food and share food. And so because of this holy day, Nehemiah and Ezra are saying, whoa, 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 that's not the purpose of today. We'll get to that, all right? We'll get to that. Let's, Let's party and celebrate God's grace. Let's celebrate his gracious salvation. Now, today this day is known as Rosh Hashanah. It kind of lost its original biblical meaning because it also happened to be the first day of the civil new year. I don't even know what that means. Maybe it's like a fiscal new year kind of thing. So today it's Rosh Hashanah. But this was a holy day and they're celebrating here uh, God's grace on this, on this incredible time. And just a few application points before we move on. First of all, what is our high point of Christian worship in terms of God's salvation? Is it not the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper should not be A time of gloomy, beating ourselves up, boring, monotonous celebration. It needs to be a time that we we truly celebrate and praise God. The first and foremost thing, if you're a believer in Christ, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, praise God for his gracious salvation. The same attitude you see here. And I may have said this before, but, but one day when we're in another facility that we can do this, occasionally... I would love for us to end our worship service with the Lord's Supper and have that go right into a love feast where we go eat lunch, we, we share what we've brought and just celebrate God's grace and each other as the body of Christ. Yeah, free food. Is that what you said? No, that's good, man. Hey, we love feeding people at this church, so come on. Yeah, exactly. Come on. Hey, two weeks, birthday party, lunch after the service, come back in two weeks. Yeah, serious you didn't know that I interact with people. See, they know that. I'm not afraid to, so that's good, man. <laughs> actually, we had it planned earlier, so I put them up to that. Gave them a few bucks. Thanks, man. Just kidding. Just kidding. Look at this passage from Isaiah 29. This passage is actually a prophecy refer, or profi- prophesizing this very day, this Nehemiah 8 occasion, uh, after the Babylonian captivity. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Out of darkness, light being fulfilled in front of our eyes. And uh, again, back to my testimony, you guys know I was reading the Bible in the military. I also had a second job at a grocery store, Winn-Dixie. They used to be in business here, but they're not anymore. Anyways, there was a movie a while ago because of Winn-Dixie. I never watched it. It looked kind of cheesy, but, but it, that's my story because of Winn-Dixie. Because when God was changing my heart, I went through this period of time of repentance, and I was working with some guys at, at Winn-Dixie that were Christians, supposedly, and I came and said, hey, do you guys know a church we can go to? And one of them said, yeah, my brother's a youth pastor at this, uh, this Southern Baptist church, and they were kind of contemporary, which I liked. They had a rock band, that it was really cool. I probably wouldn't go there today, but it was, it was perfect for where I was at that time, And I remember the feeling of now going and celebrating life with other believers, being around people who were Christians like I now had become. And it was just the most awesome thing, that celebration of God's grace. And and I think some of that's happening here. They're they're now in. God has transformed their heart. Also, what we see here with this gracious gift of understanding and, and the need for us to celebrate God's salvation regularly, this is what we need to fuel not only the Lord's Supper, but also our third space and our family meals and our missional community groups. Because I can tell you, as a former lost person, lost people, have, they celebrate. They party all the time. And they don't have the hope that we do. We have the greatest thing ever to celebrate. So we need to take time as, as believers to, to enjoy the Lord's fellowship, enjoy one another, and then invite lost people that we know in our lives to come into that. And to see, see what God is doing and and have opportunity to share the gospel. So I think there's a lot of implications for what we do as missional community here as well. So we've seen these first two, exposure, understanding. The final way that God graciously uses his word in this passage is application. Application. We're going to see him now uh, take a certain group from the masses and they begin to apply what they're learning into the course of their daily Life. Now, one historical tidbit that I'll share with you that I learned this week in studying is that at this moment in time in Jewish history, this is a watershed moment, the Jewish people changed from the temple being the center of Jewish life to the scriptures now being the center of Jewish life. It should have been that way all along, but that's one mark of this time. In fact, theologians will refer to this period of time as Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism. And so uh, they also got the nickname. So imagine different countries and religions around Israel. nicknamed the Jews People of the Book because of what happened here in Nehemiah 8 and the centuries that would come after. And a lot of what God's doing here we'll see in the New Testament. Uh, Of course, we'll see perverted versions of it with the Pharisees and Sadducees. But uh, essentially, a lot of what's happening here we'll see in 500 years in the time of Jesus. So very interesting. I don't know about you, but I want to be known as people of the book. I think that's a cool nickname. So let's rejoin the text and read quickly a few things here, uh, picking up in verse 13. On the second day, so it's the second day of the month, the very next day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. So we'll stop there. That's, that's awesome. That's incredible. So much of what we do as churches, can often be superficial. How do you know something's not superficial? When the people come back. So the very next day, we see the the heads of the families come back and say, we want more. They come to the priests, they come to the Levites, they come to Ezra, say, can we study the Word of God? You know how awesome that would be if if someone did that to us today? Any of us, like fish jumping in a boat. Uh, Whether it's you sharing the gospel with a lost friend, or or somebody from Sunday morning comes and says, hey man, I loved what you shared. can, Can we Study that some more. I want to hear. I want to learn more. And so these heads, these family heads are, are coming together. And that's one of the things that Danny pointed out when he read the Shema. That's where responsibility lies. That's the group of people you want coming back and saying, teach me more. Equip me so that I can go equip others in my family and in my sphere of influence. So beautiful picture of that we seeing here. They're applying God's word to their life. It wasn't a superficial one and done religious service. God worked, and he worked deeply in the hearts of these people. So that's the first thing I wanted to point out. And of course, today, you guys know Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6.4, if you're a father, know that verse. And if you're a mother, too, because in some cases, there's no father around. Mother's got to pick up that mantle of the one responsible to teach God's word. And in Ephesians 6.4, it says, Fathers, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We have to do the same thing. And those of you who are young, who are not yet married, do not have have kids, let that foundation be built in your hearts now so that when you do have children, of course, after you get married, hopefully, uh, you will take these words and learn how you are to lead in your home. So really important for us there. Now, I'm not gonna read the rest of this passage, but what you'll see here is as they're studying in verse 14 and 15, they notice in the law hey, we we read this. And it says that also in this same month of Tishri, there's supposed to be this Feast of the Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. Shouldn't we do that? And they're like, yeah, let's do it. So they now have learned something in God's Word that they're going to apply. And it tells us that for the first time since Joshua, all the way back, like a thousand years before, Jews have not celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles in this manner. Now, Just a little history on the Jewish festivals. There were three major Jewish holidays, Passover, Pentecost, and this Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, you may remember back in Acts when we studied that, the Pentecost celebration when the Holy Spirit came, the Pentecost was the, the beginning of the harvest. So they're getting the first fruits of the harvest, and they're just enjoying the first fruits, trusting God for the full harvest to come in. Well, that was another purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's when the full harvest came in. So part of it was to celebrate the full harvest. Now, the Jews had continued to do that, but what had fallen off was this practice of building these makeshift tents and living in them for a week. Why in the world would you do that? Uh, It's similar to Christmas, right? Christmas, we we try to celebrate Jesus's birth, but then there's a Santa Claus thing, and over time, Santa Claus takes over Jesus's birth, and next thing you know, it's all about getting gifts, That's what happened with the Feast of Tabernacles. They forgot about the booths part. So what they're doing here is they're to build, and you can read about it in Deuteronomy 16. You can read about all these major festivals. But they're building these tents out of tree branches, and they're putting them in their front yard. Uh, The people in Jerusalem putting them in their front yard or on their roof. The people who live outside the city are putting them in the different uh, courts, also the temple mount. And what they were supposed to do was sacrifice the comfort of their home for a week live out in this makeshift tent to identify with the wilderness generation who followed Moses for 40 years and to praise God for faithfully bringing his people. It comes from these new believers saying, hey, the Bible says this, shouldn't we do it? And by the way, Tishri, the month of Tishri was kind of like our fall season and the trumpets on the first day of the fall because they had three atonement, you might know it as Yom Kippur, on the 10th day of the month, week, and you can see that the book of the law was even more uh, application during this important festival. So first of all, uh, just in terms of crazy with that, uh, listen, God, Jesus is gonna come back when he comes back. So be very listening to the John Hagee. Just be really careful with that. Because our number one purpose is the Great Commission, not to try to figure out when Jesus is coming back, all right? Three major Jews But that said, one thing that's very interesting is of God in the new covenant. And they their cross. Sacrifice of the past Pentecost. The fulfillment of past churches born. Again